sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would indeed quicken it to our hearts and help us to live it out, uh, to be a people of celebration. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe you see that. When I uh, told Kathy that I was going to be uh, preaching on the subject of Eutychus, the guy that Paul killed with a long sermon, uh, she said, <laughs> oh, I've got a perfect hymn for that. And she turned to the Sabbath section of the Trinity hymnal and uh, gave a hymn that said, safely through another week. Uh, apparently... It was written by somebody who had actually survived a very long Puritan sermon in the 1700s. (laughs) We are not going to be singing that hymn. It hits a little bit too close for home uh, around here. But uh, the story of Eutychus has prompted a lot of humor down through the years. Most of it's poking fun out of us pastors and it's uh, church members taking comfort in the fact that, you know, Scripture sympathizes with their falling asleep. Um, uh, there was one, past, uh, one story, though, that was a little bit safe for pastors to tell. It was by a Reformed pastor, you'd guessed it. And he did have kind of a lump in the side of his cheek, like he had a chew in there when he was telling the story. But it was about Martin, he says, was a member of his church. And he said Martin was a lovely man. He just had a servant's heart, was uh, very generous with his money, always there to volunteer. And just an all-around swell church member, but he had one fault that was really troubling. During the sermon, he would find his head nodding, and before you knew it, he was off to sleep, and he would wake up a half hour later thoroughly refreshed. And his wife was uh, really troubled by this, and she'd elbow him, but he just didn't seem to pay any attention. So one day, she brought into the service, uh, snuck it in in cellophane wrap, uh, something that in the past had just about blown him over. It stank so bad. It was some Limburger cheese. And she unwrapped the Limburger cheese after he fell asleep and put it under his nose. It didn't wake him up, didn't phase him at all, but he did talk in his sleep. He said, Martha, you've got your feet on my pillow. <laughs> well, he was already causing enough trouble in the service, so the pastor thought he'd make an example out of Martin. And uh, the congregation played along with it. Uh, he, he said, how many here want to go to heaven? And everybody except for Martin raises their hands. <laughs> and then in a voice that was loud enough to raise the dead, he says, and who wants to go to hell? And he jumped to his feet. He was startled and he thought maybe it's time to start singing. <laughs> but uh, he looks around him. There's nobody else standing. So he says, well, pastor, I don't know what we're voting on, but it looks like you and I are the only ones who are for it. <laughs> Uh, Well, as much as I like the story of Eutychus, and as much as it gives us comfort that even Paul put some people to sleep, uh, we're not even going to touch that aspect of um, this story today, much to your chagrin. Uh, The sermon is going to be 
on a Sunday in Troas. I think this is a beautiful, beautiful snapshot of a first century Sabbath day celebration of what New Covenant Christianity was all about. In many ways, it reminds me of the churches that I grew up with in Ethiopia. And the first thing that I want you to notice is that Paul did indeed treat this as a, uh, a Sabbath celebration that they were engaged in. Now, it's not going to look anything like the Old Testament uh, Sabbaths, and I'm not even going to get into uh, which of the four different views on the Sabbath are correct. I just want to deal with the, the, the concept of the Sabbath itself. In your outlines, you can see that verse 7 begins with the words, Endete miaton sabaton, literal translation, of the Greek is, and on the first day, Sabbath. And you can see in your outlines that the word that's translated as week in our uh, version here is exactly the same word that's translated in the uh, Greek Septuagint translation of the fourth commandment. It's sabbaton, it's Sabbath. And um, when you look in the uh, Old uh, Testament, you will see this phrase occurring in the Greek translation, many, many times. Now, it is the first day of the week. That's not in in debate. But when we translate it first day of the week instead of first day Sabbath, we forget about the fact that Paul is explicitly calling this a Sabbath day. Now, you can also see from your outline that the only substitution for the phrase that occurs three times in the Old Testament, seventh day Sabbath, uh, it occurs in Exodus 20.10, uh, Leviticus 23.3 and Deuteronomy 5.14, Seventh-day Sabbath. So the only substitution is the word first for se- uh, seventh. Otherwise, it's parallel. And in many ways, this is exactly the same language that was used of the festivals that had a first day and an eighth day uh, Sabbath occurring in them. And... Um, Uh, It could be argued, if you were a Seventh-day Adventist and didn't dig deeply into the text, oh, this is not a first-day Sabbath. Uh, There's still a Seventh-day Sabbath. The only reason it mentions first-day Sabbath is there must have been some uh, ceremonial festival that was going on at this time. But I've included a calendar of 55 A.D. in your outlines. You'll see there isn't any festival uh, going on on that day. And furthermore, Paul has already abolished all Old Testament Sabbaths, all Old Testament calendar altogether. In Colossians 2, 16 through 17, Paul said, Let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So we don't celebrate any Old Covenant days any longer, at least not as a mandate. This is Paul's Admonition. Now, if we thought Old Covenant days were still binding, in effect, what we would be saying is the Messiah has not yet come. Jesus has not yet come. <clears throat> because those days were at the end of the week to symbolize the fact they were still looking forward to a salvation that was yet to be accomplished. <clears throat> it, it was at the end of their week, at the end of their age. Now, once Jesus died and He said, it is finished, and He was raised from the dead, all Old Covenant days were abolished. In my book on the Sabbath, I think I clearly uh, demonstrate this. But now I just want to mention that each Gospel account ends by mentioning that there was an abolishing of one Sabbath and an institution of a brand new Sabbath. For example, Matthew 28.1 says, in the end of the Sabbath... 
as it began to dawn toward the first day Sabbath. One had to end before the other could begin. Now Mark 16 verses 1 through 2 I think is particularly strong because it uses a very strong word that I've defined in the footnote there for you that indicates that one Sabbath has completely, thoroughly passed away and then speaks of a first day Sabbath. Now this means that the Old Testament days are no longer binding in any sense or fashion. But there is a new covenant day that is binding. First uh, Corinthians 16, 1 through 2 speaks of a day keeping that the new covenant people are supposed to engage in. There's one day keeping that's done away with. There's another day keeping instituted. And uh, here's what he says. As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day, Sabbath, let each of you, and then he gives their instructions for the Sabbath gatherings. Now that could not, that statement absolutely could not be said of any old covenant day. Why? Because Paul's just written Romans chapter 14, which says, look, all of those days have passed away and stronger Christians know that. Now if you want to, if you want to celebrate a Passover day or a new moon or some of those Jewish uh, Sabbaths, that's fine. You're still worshiping on Sunday. But he says, really, all of the days are alike. In Colossians 2, he very clearly had said, that is all passed away. Um, And so, uh, if you want to keep them, you can do it, but not as a mandate. It is not something imposed upon the church. Now, there is something quite different about the new covenant day keeping because Paul does not speak of the new covenant Sabbath as being an option. He says, I have given orders to the churches. You must do this. And then he gives a command concerning Sabbath keeping. So there is a difference on the uh, New Testament day keeping. So that in a nutshell is why I believe it's appropriate to um, call the first day of the week uh, the Christian Sabbath. It's not because I want to bring you back under the Old Covenant. I think the Old Covenant has passed away. This is a day of rejoicing and celebration, relaxation, feasting. You know, we don't fast from food, we feast upon food. We don't fast from the Word of God, we feast upon it. And Paul had given these people such a grand feast. In fact, they were overstuffed with this spiritual turkey, so much so that Eutychus fell asleep, fell out of the window. And I don't want a lot of amens this morning, or I can relate uh, this morning. But lest anybody be tempted to think, okay, we have a new covenant Sabbath, Let's go back and let's celebrate it the Puritan way. Let's celebrate it the Old Covenant way. I want to point out some interesting facts about this um, passage that I had not noticed before. First of all, I want you to notice that this church meeting was in the late afternoon, began in the late afternoon or the evening. Now, that's very, very interesting and significant. I want to, first of all, deal with an objection, though, because... A Seventh-day Adventist might come along and say, oh, that's, that's not a problem, or somebody else might come along, maybe a, a Puritan first-day Sabbath observer, and say, well, what's going on here is that they're starting the day the evening before because Jews celebrated from sundown to sundown. And we're going to be seeing in a moment that actually the New Testament changed that. So there's a number of things new that I've discovered as I've uh, done some research uh, this week on that. But uh, if... They used Jewish reckoning, then Paul would have left on the same day that he was celebrating together with them. They're meeting together on the first day of the week. It's dark. 
He's not going to leave until the next day, and yet he leaves at daybreak the next day. And uh, uh, it it's just does not work on a uh, even a midnight-to-midnight interpretation. We're going to be seeing it simply does not work. But sure, for sure, it does not work on Jewish reckoning. And there's a better explanation for this, and, and it's this. They lived in a pagan culture, and many of the church members could not get time off from their work in order to be able to come and to celebrate the Sabbath together. Their employers would not let them off. And so the early church found it necessary to accommodate this tough situation. In fact, we find identical language in the church fathers in the first three centuries. They wanted to keep uh, the Sabbath, and they called it a Sabbath, and even in uh, the, uh, the first century, second century, third century, all the way through, as many church fathers spoke of it as a Sabbath to say, but there's many people in our churches whose pagan employers will not let them off from work. So what did they do in the first three centuries? They said, well, let's have church later on in the day to accommodate these people. It didn't mean they didn't have church earlier as well, but I think that's what's going on in this passage. Now, that's very instructive to me. It shows a sensitivity to culture. It, uh, it shows that uh, even though there is a principle here, we need to honor the day, they recognize not everybody is able to do so. And so the church tried to work with them. Now look at the sacrifice that they made in order to try to get in a full Sabbath. They were up all night. I'm sure some of them were pretty tired <laughs> the next day when they went to work. Paul could sleep it off. He's going on a boat. But these guys, you know, they're going to be tired for the next day. Now, I'm sure they did not do this every Sunday. They're trying to get every bit out of Paul that they can. But what it does show to me is they have a heart. They have a heart for celebrating all of the things that God had for them on the Sabbath. Now, we can see another hint of the way that Paul honored the first day Sabbath in the way in which he traveled. Uh, Dr. Francis Nigel Lee goes through the whole book of Acts and he shows how the early church honored every Sabbath day. I'm not going to go into all of the specifics. In fact, if I were to write down all of the chronological specifics, it would have taken quite a few pages that I'd have to hand out to you and been uh, very you know, tedious to read through. So what I've done is I've just put a calendar of April and May of 55 A.D. There were eight Sundays that are outlined in Acts chapter 20 and Acts chapter 21. And on page 749 of his commentary, Simon Kistemacher gives some of the details of how that sequence went through. But Dr. Francis Nigel Lee goes into a much more detailed work. It does make a difference which year you believe it's going in. Uh, Dr. Lee disagrees with me. He thinks it was in 56 A.D. and he thinks Paul kept every Sunday and uh, did not work on them. Uh, I think it was in 55 A.D., I'm quite convinced of that, and that Paul did indeed travel on one of these uh, Sundays. Now, it really doesn't matter who's right. What is very clear on anybody's chronology, any way that you look at it, any way you slice it, is that Paul went out of his way to make it clear he was not honoring the seventh-day Sabbath. It, it's very clear he traveled even when he didn't need to travel on the seventh uh, day. Now, when you examine those two charts, uh, it, it, it makes sense where Paul has already twice in Romans and also in Colossians said, all old covenant keeping of days has been abolished, has been done away with. He feels under no obligation to the Saturday Sabbath. Now, if the year 55 A.D. is correct, then here's what you see with regard to the first day of the week. On March 28, Paul worships in Ephesus. He travels the next two days up to Philippi. Now, we saw 
Last week, he had intended to travel down south, which would have been a much longer trip, so he takes off right away on Monday to make sure he can get down there, I believe, in order to worship on Sunday. But the Jews are going to kill him, right? And so he flees from them. He goes north. It's a two-day trip. And he hangs out in Philippi until the, uh, the whole uh, feast Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is uh, completely finished. So he worships on Sunday, April 4. He stays in Philippi. And on either Tuesday or Wednesday, there's debate whether it's April 6 or 7, Paul heads to Troas. Now, ordinarily, that trip from Philippi to Troas would take two days, three days max at this time of season, but it takes five days. And commentators wonder, why would it take five days? It's a two-day trip, three days max. And so all of the commentators said what must have happened is there must have been some unusual uh, adversarial winds that were preventing him from coming down. Uh, and so he doesn't arrive until uh, the, uh, the next Monday. But you can see that for all of the rest of the Sundays in those two months, Paul has arranged his schedule around the first day of the week. Now, if it was just one or two of these, you could just chalk it up to coincidence. But uh, Francis Nigel Lee shows this is the pattern throughout the book of Acts. It is quite deliberate. Now, what are the conclusions that we can learn from this? Well, I learned that to the degree that we can plan to keep the Sabbath, we should strive to do so. But if we're not able to, we're providentially hindered, we shouldn't sweat it, okay? We shouldn't get too troubled. Uh, There are people who have to travel on Sunday. They just can't get around it. They have to work on Sunday. And so Paul flexes with God's providences. So when you take together Paul's attitude and his travel and the church's attitude toward those who had to work on the first day of the week, they couldn't, their employers would not give them time off, you realize that the church is accommodating of those schedules. Uh, The church is gracious, it's flexible, it's understanding to those who providentially couldn't keep the Sabbath. Doesn't appear to be any church judgment whatsoever. On the other hand, to the degree we can plan our schedules, you can see Paul is a great example of trying to plan for a great Sabbath rests. Now, so I think this is a great passage to turn to, first of all, for those who think we don't have any Sabbath today, and secondly, for those who think, hey, we've got to be rigid and uh, just puritanical in the way in which we approach. It's a great passage. Now, there's one more thing related to the Sabbath I see in this passage. Uh, For years, I vacillated on whether or not we should celebrate the Sabbath from sundown to sundown, sun uh, sun up to sun up, midnight to midnight, and there's good arguments for all three of those. And it's not stressed me out. It's not a mandate. But I thought, well, it'd be cool to do it the way they did it back then. Uh, And if you're curious, I think this passage helps to answer that question. Again, it's not a biblical mandate, but I think there's something symbolic going on here that's very cool. Verse 7. Now, on the first day of the week... When the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Here's the facts that we can put together. First, they gathered on the first day of the week. That's clear. And it's still the first day of the week when it's dark. Second, or third, as they gather, Paul is ready to depart the next day. He's got his bags packed. He's ready to fly out of there. Uh, as soon as the next day comes. Fourth, the purpose of gathering was to break bread in communion on the first day of the week. Fifth, 
Paul doesn't get to communion and doesn't even anticipate getting to communion until after midnight. Sixth, they leave at daybreak on Monday morning. And you can see that later on in verse 11. Leave at daybreak. And um, this indicates that the next day did not start until daybreak. I don't know any other way of interpreting this. I've tried and tried to interpret it the way Dr. Francis Nigel Lee does from midnight to midnight. So what's going on here is he is neither following the Jewish pattern nor is he following the Roman pattern of midnight to midnight. This is a brand new pattern that has been established of dawn to dawn. What's the significance of this? Well, when Jesus died, he rose from the dead triumphant. He was... Uh, ascended to the right hand of the Father, He began to make all things new. Okay, He gave a new temple, a new geography, new spiritual gifts to the body of Christ. And I think this is one of several passages that indicates that with the rising of this symbolic new sun, the dawning of the kingdom, that He throws out all old covenant keeping and brings in all things new with regard to timing as well. So Colossians and Romans... He's just recently thrown out the old covenant keeping. No longer will things start with darkness and proceed to the dawning of the day. That's the way it was. It was started in the evening, ended the next evening. So it's uh, evening to evening. No longer does it do it that way. Why? Because the kingdom has dawned. The end of their week has come. And so because of the dawning of the kingdom, he's starting the new covenant day with the light rather than with the darkness. So a new calendar has happened. There's a division of B.C. and A.D. Actually, it didn't happen until significantly later. But you look at the way the apostles treated They see this as the demarcation of time. They see the cross as being the center of history. Uh, so there's a new calendar, new holy days, the first uh, day Sabbath, something prophesied in the Old Testament. And then there's a new division of days. Now, this is just hinted at in this passage. Uh, but I believe it is one of many indications the new covenant makes all things new. So, first thing that you would notice if you went to Troas on a Sunday is you would notice them celebrating the Sabbath. <clears throat> the second thing you would notice is the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And it's not celebrated the old covenant way. It's celebrated a new covenant way. They anticipate the Lord's Supper in verse 7 and they actually celebrate it after midnight in verse 11. Now, why do I call it a celebration? Three reasons. First, this is not like the old covenant meals which were anticipating that salvation is still future. It has not yet come. Now, it was promised, so that's reason enough to celebrate, but this is way more than that. This is looking back to the words of Christ. It is finished. The victory is won. All that's left for us is to stand fast in that victory that Jesus has achieved for us. Second, we value the many, many covenant blessings that God has promised to bestow in us through the Lord's table on a weekly basis. Well, you know, this is, this is something we celebrate, we rejoice, and we don't want to be robbed of those weekly blessings. No, we're, 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 we're um, looking forward to and to anticipating them. Third, it's a reminder that if God is for us, who can be against us? And so there's every reason to celebrate the, uh, the Lord's table uh, and to be grieved when we are cut off from the Lord's table because when you're cut off from the Lord's table, you're cut off from God's fellowship. Now, I said that we don't want people robbing us of that weekly blessing, but there are some people out there who say, ah, let's not have it on a weekly basis. Let's have it four times a year. 
Or maybe, as is pretty customary in some churches, let's have it uh, once a month. And uh, the reason that they give for that is we want to keep the Lord's table special. If we celebrate it too often, it's just going to become common. It's not going to be special. So my suggestion to you is uh, I really suggest you kiss your wife uh, once a quarter or once a month to really keep that kiss special, right? Uh, or that you preach the Word only once a month or once a quarter. Uh, that you sing only once a month or once a quarter. That'll keep it special. Now, obviously, I'm being facetious on that, but that's the only argument that they have. Let's keep it special. And I believe you can have lovemaking. You can have a preaching of the Word, feasting upon food. You can have it very frequent and still have it very precious and very special to you. In fact, really, the opposite is what usually happens. People who only celebrate the Lord's uh, table... Uh, quarterly or four times uh, once a month, what usually happens is they see this as being non-essential. We don't have to have it every week. It's non-essential. And so it becomes something that they don't look forward to. When it happens, oh, yeah, this is going to be one of those long Sundays. That's too bad. <laughs> and they're not anticipating uh, what, what is coming up. So let me comment on this subject very briefly. Weekly communion is indeed hinted at here. First day of the week is defined in verse 7 as when the disciples came together to break bread. Verse 7 says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, and so the Sabbath was the time for breaking bread. Now that's only a hint there, and it could be interpreted a different way, but Calvin points out that if the Lord's table takes over all of the old covenant meals and replaces them, not just the Passover, then we should celebrate the Lord's table as frequently as those fellowship meals were celebrated in the Old Testament, which was weekly in the temple. Every single week they were celebrated. Now, of course, there are other scriptures that indicate this was indeed the practice of the early church. Acts 2, verse 42 says that the disciples, quote, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. They were steadfast in those elements of worship. Now, that implies two things. First of all, it implies that wherever you had worship, wherever you had worship that had apostolic teaching, had uh, fellowship, had prayers, you also had communion. Now, automatically, that implies weekly communion. But it, there's a second thing in that passage. It says they continued steadfastly in breaking bread. Now, that's hard to interpret on a yearly basis or a quarterly, or even a monthly basis, because Acts chapter 2 is talking at most maybe two or three months spread of time. So if they're continuing steadfastly in breaking bread, it implies a regular partaking of the Lord's Supper. Now, the only logical alternative to weekly communion is once-a-year communion uh, in the Passover. Nowhere, nowhere in the Bible will you find any monthly pattern of communion or quarterly pattern of communion. Uh, you just will not find it there. And 1 Corinthians 10 explicitly ties communion to all of the Old Covenant meals. And then chapter 11 explicitly says that they celebrated the Lord's table, quote, when you come together, verse 17. When you come together as a church, verse 18. When you come, and you could be translated, whenever you come together in one place, verse 20. When you come together to eat, verse 33, and a warning, lest you come together for judgment, verse 24. 
which implies that whenever they came together, they were receiving judgment, which implies what? They were partaking of the Lord's table whenever they came together. And so there is, uh, I think, a great deal of evidence in the New Testament for John Calvin's view that we should partake of communion on a weekly basis. So, if you were a visitor to Troas, you would come to this church and you would notice them celebrating the Sabbath, celebrating the Lord's table, and celebrating the preaching of the Word. Verses 7 through 9 shows the hunger that these people had for the Word of God. Uh, Verse 7 ends by saying, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. And then after the fiasco of verses 8 through 10, verse 11 says, Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. Now some commentators assume that maybe they were even meeting earlier on in the day, uh, but he's just mentioning this last part. But let's just assume they didn't. Let's just assume they started meeting at 6 or 7 o'clock in the evening. That means they were meeting together for 11 to 12 hours And most of that time, a good chunk of that time, was spent in listening to the Word. And again, I doubt all of their services lasted that long. Even even Luke seems to indicate the way he writes this, that this was a long, really extra long service, uh, even for him. But the point I'm wanting to make here is they had a hunger. They had a hunger for the Word of God. Uh, They uh, wanted to get everything from Paul that they could. And to me, this shows the reality of their Christianity. Uh, First Peter says that when you are newborn babes, God instantly puts within your heart a hungering for the Word of God. Like newborn babes, hunger for the sincere milk of the Word. And when we don't hunger for it, there's something wrong. So what Paul does is he accommodates this hunger by staying up all night. Now, again, not a paradigm for what we should do every Sunday. Uh, special time that they had to go through. But I tell you, I I see this kind of hunger in Asia, especially amongst the country uh, groups. They get up 4 o'clock in the morning so that they can get in their two hours of prayer. Now we have a brief breakfast at 6, and the rest of the day until midnight usually is taken up in teaching or in counseling. These people are hungry. They're sucking you dry. They'd keep you up all night if you could survive doing that. Now, I'm thankful in the cities they have got a much better kind of a schedule. But um, New Covenant people in Troas were celebrating the preaching of the Word. If they're willing to listen at such great length here, you know they're looking forward to a much more moderate preaching of the Word each Sunday uh, uh, Sabbath. So if you're a visitor to Troas on any given Sunday, you would see the church glorying in the Sabbath glorying in the Lord's table, glorying in the preaching of God's Word, and glorying in the comfort that God's grace brings in the midst of pain and suffering. On this particular Sunday, death visited their group, uh, verses 8 through 9. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. He was not just unconscious. Paul, uh, Luke was a physician. He knew he was dead. He says he was dead. In fact, the literal rendering is he was taken up a corpse. And death and suffering continues to visit the people of God. It is not until the second coming that Romans 8 says that the redemption of our bodies takes place. It's not until the second coming that 1 Corinthians 15 says 
Then will be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. It's not until the second coming that Revelation 21 says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation 21, verse 4. See, believers have tears. Despite the fact that God has blessed us with, with all of the things that Jesus has purchased, we have tears. If you went to Troas on any given Sunday, you're not going to see people who have managed to avoid all pain. No, you're going to see a brother hugging another brother and praying over him and comforting him and the pain that he's going through. You're going to see a group of people praying for somebody who's been left sick at home. You're going to see these people working through the suffering and the pain and the tears that are part and parcel of Christianity. This is not a Pollyanna church. This is not a church that is in denial like uh, the Christian science churches are. Oh, it's all in your mind. You've got to just deny that these things are they're happening. No, they stood in the victory of Christ's resurrection, yes, but they recognized what theologians, we theologians, call the already, not yet. Can you say that with me? Already, not yet. That's a very, very important term, uh, which means that we have already entered into something in the future, and yet there's some aspects of that that are not yet ours to possess. We've already received all things in Christ, when He died, He rose again. I've already quoted Ephesians 1.3. God blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's even blessed us with the new heavens and the new earth. We've been blessed with everything. Everything is ours. And many of those things, they're there for the claiming. Here's what 1 Corinthians 3.21-23 says. All things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. But some of those all things will not be experienced until the second coming. For example, he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. He's already purchased that new heavens and that new earth. It is so guaranteed that Scripture says in some fashion... We're in the new heavens and the new earth. We're tasting, Hebrews says, of the powers of the age to come. It belongs to the age to come. We're already tasting of it in some measure. But it's not until the second coming that the old earth will be burned up with a fervent heat and we're going to be ushered into the glories of the new uh, heavens and the new earth. And so even though Jesus is progressively making all things new, we're looking for a country in which no death dwells. In fact, the pain and the suffering that we go through right now makes us look forward to heaven, doesn't it? Uh, we, 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 we suffer. We suffer from other people abusing us. We suffer from pain in our bodies and arthritis. And the more we suffer, the more we sing, Lord, thank you for heaven. I'm looking forward to that time. Amen? And so why do I bring this up? I, I do it because I have seen Christians put other Christians in a lot of guilt because they don't have faith to have a healing, or as a case recently, have a resurrection, okay? There is a difference between experiencing the full redemption of our bodies, which Romans 8 makes clear does not happen until the second coming, and experiencing foretastes and down payments of that redemption of the body that God gives to us right now. Now, as we're going to be seeing in the next point, I believe in miracles. I believe in healings. In fact, uh, I believe that God continues to raise the dead. There have been several dead raised in the last 2,000 years. I know three examples. But here is the point. 
Even though God is merciful, He is powerful, He can do anything that He wants, He's gracious, He is under no obligation to remove all sickness, pain, or suffering from the Christian. You see, if we fail to understand this theological principle of the already, not yet. Say that again. Already, not yet. If we fail to understand that principle, we can go into all kinds of error. Let me give you some examples. Full preterism says every prophecy in the Scripture has been fulfilled. There's nothing yet to be anticipated. We have the already. There is no not yet. Now, what that forces them to conclude is, well, there's death and suffering around, and so that's just natural. And so for millions and trillions of years in the future, they say people are going to continue to be born and to die and they'll go to heaven and we don't care about these bodies. They're just going to be discarded. But God has put it as part of his plan that there be death. Death did not come as a result of the fall. They're forced to this conclusion. Now, on the other hand, uh, there are people who who, um, are so focused again on this already that they say, if you don't have a healing that there is something wrong with your faith. In fact, God does not will for us to die. That's Satan who's robbing us of, of our death. What we have to do is hold on to the already. We've got to be pursuing what is here. Now, on the other hand, there are some people who think there isn't any already. All they can see is the not yet. So they say, oh yeah, there isn't any miracles today. There aren't any healings today. That's for the age to come. They don't even know what it means that Hebrews talks about the taste of the powers of the age to come. So you really have to hold those together, the already and the not yet. Romans 8 ends by saying that what we can claim with absolute confidence is that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Not death, not life, not anything related to death or life. Romans 8 assures us we will indeed face tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. That is what we can bank on. That is what we can glory in and find comfort in. It is this presence of grace that enabled Luke to say in verse 12, they were not a little comforted. In other words, they were a lot comforted, right? But the point is, Christians need comfort. Why? Because it's part and parcel of the Christian life to be weeping and to face pain and discouragement and suffering. And so if you went to Troas on any given Sunday, you could see a church that had not learned to avoid pain, but had learned how to... Uh, say with Paul that uh, I'm exceedingly joyful in all of our tribulation. And I really think that's a more remarkable tribute to God's grace than if God somehow could remove all tribulation and suffering from our lives. Amen? If God can sustain us through all of that, that is a tremendous tribute to His grace. May our church be a church that realistically ministers to each other in tribulations just like Troas did. Now another thing that a visitor might see at Troas would be weekly testimonies to the grace and life and power of God in their midst. Now, on this particular occasion, it it was just a remarkable, remarkable testimony. Verses 10 through 12. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. 
Now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive and they were not a little uh, comforted. Now this miracle was astounding. Paul was used by God to raise somebody from the dead. Now uh, liberals deny such miracles. They don't believe in the supernatural and so you'll get commentators like Quinol and Olshausen, Ewald, uh, DeWalt, DeWitt, I mean, who say that the boy was stunned. He was knocked unconscious. The crowd assumed that he was dead, but Paul went down and said, oh, I guess he's not dead after all. And so they completely explain this away. Luke says he's dead. It's not the crowd that's saying that he is dead. Now, we rightly criticize such uh, denials of the supernatural, but I sometimes think that evangelicals who believe that there is supernatural in the Bible don't believe in any supernatural in their own lives. I think that's really true. And they do it for exactly the same reasons that the liberals do. It's just too hard to believe. It doesn't fit our experience. But you know what? Your experience or lack of experience is no judge of the truth. None whatsoever. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and mention that I believe that uh, miracles such as this are continuing to occur today. And I know there's going to be skepticism in the minds of some people. That's okay. You don't have to believe a thing that I say. And you're probably saying, I'm held captive to the Bible, okay? And amen. I say amen to that. But I don't think evangelicals are held captive to the Word of God when it comes to miracles. I don't believe it. People say and use every excuse in the book they can as to why miracles do not continue to occur. They say, oh yeah, well, there are signs of an apostle. And apostleship has passed away, so signs of an apostle have passed away. I agree. Apostles have passed away. Signs of an apostle have passed away. Mark 16 talks about the same exact miracles being signs of a believer. What do you say about that? Have believers passed away? I don't think so. So I really think we do need to wrestle with this. Now, I'm not going to list all of the temporary resurrections I believe have actually occurred, but let me just list out five for you. First one was by a man who was utterly skeptical of this ever happening whatsoever. He's a very famous man that we Reformed people love. Uh, his name was Augustine, and uh, he lived from 354 to 430 A.D. He reported several cases of people who had died and been raised to life through prayer. One of these guys had been dead for four days. He stinketh already, okay? This guy was dead, 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 and he was raised to life. Now, as I said, he was utterly skeptical of this kind of thing ever being able to happen before, but he said it is undeniable. He lists all the witnesses, the very names and the places, and uh, he was convinced that this did indeed happen, and, and uh, he saw it. Now, two centuries earlier, Irenaeus, who lived from 130 to 202 A.D., gives similar reports, and he said, As I have said, the dead even have been raised up and remained among us for many years. There are two uh, death certificates that I've seen of people who had remarkable resurrections. I'm not even going to uh, deal with that, but let me get personal and deal with three that um, I'm very closely related to. My um, uh, grandma was prayed back to life after she died, and she said that she experienced heaven. She didn't want to come back into her body. She was very grieved when she did. Um, uh, my sister-in-law's grandma came back to life after she had been declared dead in a hospital um, surgery room and uh, for some time. And the interesting thing about her is she left a five-point Arminian, and she came back a five-point Calvinist. Very, very interesting. <laughs> 
She said she was so overwhelmed with the depravity of man, after that she had no problem understanding the five points of Calvinism. It just, it just clicked, just like that for her. Um, my sister-in-law, when she was a child, was clinically dead and even rigor mortis had set in, and yet through prayer she was raised up to life. She was healed. And though these things are rare, there is no reason to believe that God cannot today give a foretaste of the powers of the age to come by giving a temporary coming back to life. It's not something we can demand, but it is certainly something we can rejoice in. And the saints in this church had extra reason to celebrate the Lord's table on that particular night. The Lord's Supper testifies to the fact that Jesus Christ triumphed over every enemy, including the last enemy, death. And whether we see a miracle or we don't see a miracle in our lives, we can rejoice in the fact that we are safe in the arms of Jesus. Every Lord's Day should have conversations and should have testimonies to the fact that God is real in our lives. He's powerful. He's at work in what we're doing. It might be a testimony of how God you know, provided finances in our lives, you know, just at the right time. Or it might be how God has given guidance to us or helped us to see something. I was really touched uh, one time when Tom shared with us um, two or three stories about how he had lost things. And he said, Lord, I can't find this. He's looking around. Open my eyes, Lord, to see where this is. And boom, right there. The Lord opens his eyes so he can see it. I mean, these things may seem like little things, but they're testimonies to the reality of God's working in our lives. Or it may be how God has used a spiritual gift in you to minister to others or somebody else. Their spiritual gift has ministered to you. Um, or it may be, you know, how you led somebody to Christ or how you came to Christ. But churches ought to be filled with testimonies to the reality of God's life, His grace, His power at work. And I think this church has that, you know, in the times of conversation that we have. These are things that are encouraging. They stimulate uh, the faith and the unity of the saints. Luke ends this whole section by saying, And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. What a wonderful understatement. Not a little comforted. And that is my prayer for each of you, that the comfort of God's grace would be your constant, constant uh, possession. Now, this has just been a little cameo of what a church could look like. I believe it's realistic. I believe it honors God. And I want us to strive to be a church that is celebrational. Every Sunday, celebrating the Sabbath. That's the day that God delights to pour His blessings into your life. Right in Genesis chapter 2, He blessed the day. He made it a day of blessing. So celebrating the Sabbath, celebrating the Lord's table, celebrating the preaching of the Word, celebrating the grace of God that sustains us in the midst of darkness and, and tears and tribulation, and celebrating the fact that our God is a powerful God at work in the midst of His people. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You so much for the power of Your grace that is at work, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Father, it is our desire to live in the light of the, of the death and the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus, that we may know the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, that we would not have to go through any suffering without experiencing Your fellowship. We love You. We bless You. And it is our desire to serve You faithfully all the days of our life. And so we pray that you would strengthen this, your people. In Jesus' name, amen.